This episode is sponsored by Mint Home Loans. With mortgage interest rates nearing all-time lows, now is the time to see what options you may qualify for. Make Mint Home Loans your trusted partner for all your mortgage needs. In today's times, your money matters. Shop local with Mint at 410-458-6847 for any home loan questions you may have. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Plantle, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories that we all have. Everyone that you meet on your journey, they have a story. And as we say here on Life's Tough, every story has a purpose. Doran Kempel, our guest today, is an Israeli-born American international technology innovator, serial entrepreneur, and he was the former deputy chief of an Israeli Special Forces Unit. Kempel graduated from Harvard Business School with a Master's of Business Administration. He also holds a law degree from Tel Aviv University. Today, we're going to hear his story. Let's bring him on now. Doran, welcome to Life's Tough. Thank you for having me, Dustin. Well, thank you for coming on. And, you know, this show is amazing in that we get to talk to people like you, people that don't quit, people that don't give up. So tell us, Tell us your story. How did you how did you get in the military? Oh, I was hoping that we're going to talk about bonds. No, not yet. We'll get there. Because life is tough. So our bond, which is the name of the company, can be by your side, maybe make your life a little less tough. But you want to start talking about it with me. So um, I am a U.S. citizen, and I was very fortunate to be a kid in uh, the U.S., in Boston well before my uh, late teens. But then in, what was it, 77, my parents went back to Israel. And when I became 18, just like any other Israeli kids, I was drafted. And I had the wonderful uh, luxury of option to volunteer. And I volunteered into something that I didn't completely understand at that point in time. It's a different era with less social media and had a tremendous uh, pleasure and privilege to serve for about uh, 12 years with wonderful people and to do wonderful things, at least as far as I'm concerned. But your question is, how did I get there? How did you get get there? I mean, you still took the decision. Yeah, but you still made a decision that you would do it. You know, there are people around the world that when they're called upon, they don't find that courage. They're afraid. How did you face it? Well, I think that, uh, sorry for uh, being a little anticlimactic here, but basically at that time, uh, you get to that age, it's just a phase in your life where I grew up, and the options that you have is where do you want to serve and what do you do with those three years? So at that time, if you're a man, you serve for three years. If you're a woman, you serve for two years. And you have a lot of optionality in terms of what you want to do, and you can serve next to home and learn um, computer science or do something that is very easy. For me, there was a little bit of a dilemma because I was an athlete. I was a member of the national uh, youth handball team 
So when you're in that particular position, you can basically bypass the military. They'll find you a position where you can stay close to home and continue to practice. But uh, I grew up in a house and the environment was clear that what I wanted to do was realize uh, different dimensions of myself. So I was uh, fortunate to be able to volunteer to a special unit and had very rewarding years and, in that service. And so what sort of adjustment was it like? I mean, here you go from Boston to Israel. What was that adjustment like from a cultural difference? I mean, it was different, was it not? Yeah, I'd say that the most difficult thing is leaving uh, mama's uh, kitchen and the loving uh, family that you're a part of on a daily basis. And suddenly you're in a, sorry to use the name of your show, in a tougher, more formal environment. Um, discipline was not much of an issue because I grew up in a house where I had to take care of the horses and the dogs and the cats and the rest of the animals. So I had a routine and I uh, was a responsible kid growing up. But uh, I think that separating from the family and not going home for a few weeks, that was the hardest thing for me, as silly as it sounds. But during the first six months, the hardest part of the military service was being far away from home and just missing everybody whom I love. I mean, what did you learn about yourself during that? You're referring to the first few months or the yeah. overall service? All, all the above. Well, you, know, you learn uh, about weaknesses that don't get exposed in your teens. You uh, establish a more uh, clear assessment of how you measure relative to other people. It's not that obvious uh, in your teens, even in sports, because you're never taken uh, to the edge. And sometimes it's at the edge that you see what are the differences among uh, people. You uh, establish an understanding of what it means to lead. So I was very fortunate. I was sent to Officers Academy. I volunteered. I got to lead people. So you get a lot uh, to learn from that perspective. I was very fortunate in that I was in a unit that had a lot of exposure to very senior people. For instance, uh, two prime ministers, two former prime ministers of Israel wow. were officers in that unit. Uh, one of them, uh, Ehud Barak, was head of military intelligence when I was an officer. Then he was uh, second in command of the military. Then he was the head of the military. So basically, I had quite a lot of interaction with him and other officers that perhaps are not as uh, famous. So you're learning from people who, on one hand, are extremely experienced. And on the other hand, which is very important, are very uh, vocal. They explain their thinking. They explain their judgment. So it's not an environment where you're just being ordered around because there is debate. There is a lot of emphasis and encouragement of people at all levels to voice their opinions, to be skeptical, to understand the big picture, to understand how their role fits into the overall strategy and the uh, mission. And through that dialectical tension and debate, you learn a lot. So um, I guess that is added to the basket of what you learn. You learn how to manage, how to lead. Um, a lot of the uh, missions that that unit has to undertake are first of their kind. 
So you need to learn how to design, which is something that we don't talk much about. So if you think about it, any uh, major activity starts with initiation. Somebody comes up with an idea. Then somebody, not necessarily the same person, but it could be the same person, needs to design. Then somebody needs to build. Then somebody needs to run. So let's assume that uh, John Smith comes up with the idea, let's build a train line between Boston and New York. Great idea. Now somebody needs to design this thing that is called the Acela or the Acela Express. Somebody else needs to build it. Somebody needs to run it. And there are different sets of skills and competencies that are associated with initiation, with design, with building, and with running something day to day. And design is very difficult. Of course, initiation also requires culture and uh, unique characteristics, but then doing the actual design is very difficult and very few people can do that very well in terms of planning and designing, whether it's a product or some kind of a an activity or a service. So we can go on and on, but I don't want to. That's a great, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. So I have a, I have a nine-year-old and we came back yesterday from basketball practice and I said, how'd it go? He said, it went really well. And I said, so you feel like you're getting better. He said, daddy, I can always get better. And so I say to you that it seems to me that this military experience that you had to practice, that it, what you got out of it was what you put into it. And that to become an officer, to rise above the ranks, to rise, that it requires this mentality that all it takes is all you got. So where did you find that fuel to keep going? What pushed you to keep going? Because most people quit. Most people say it's too hard. It's too many hours. And they give up. Why didn't you quit? Why didn't you give up? Well, um, Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about why do certain people not give up? And I think that at the end of the day, two things that are not much talked about, because we're in a culture where people talk about passion all the time, uh, as if we always get to do what we're passionate about. Well, it gets difficult when we're not doing what's passionate about, or when we get to certain phases that are not much fun. That's when it gets uh, difficult. And I think that at the end of the day, something that is not talked much about is self-discipline. Because the greatest things that we need to overcome eventually are overcome with self-discipline. And the term self-discipline is relevant when it's not fun. And I believe that there are three dimensions of or types of uh, adversary or uh, things that we need to overcome. And each one of them requires a different type of strength and or self-discipline. Some people excel at one or are good at one, some at two, some at all three. The first one has to do with overcoming discomfort. Typically, we're talking about pain or fatigue. And we, we all know what it is, even if we're studying to an exam or for an exam at 4 a.m. or when your son is probably practicing and the coach has them run a few full lengths of the court and there's some pain inside his uh, chest. So pain and fatigue are one type. And some people are uh, doing an okay job overcoming that. But you overcome that with self-discipline because when you're in pain, you're not passionate. It's just a question of whether the mission or the goal or what it is that you said to do is worth the pain and you either overcome it or not. So that's one. The second one 
has to do with fear or anxiety, which is also physically uncomfortable. But at that point in time, if you're afraid of something, overcoming it in order to do something that you believe is worthy or uh, it is your duty to do requires a different type of overcoming. And again, I believe that it's based on self-discipline. So both the first and the second have to do with overcoming something that is outside of us that is confronting us. One of them is pain or fatigue. The other one is anxiety or fear. Fear in my mind is associated with a real objective reality. So if I face a lion, I should be fearing the lion, especially if the lion is hungry. But if I'm uh, worried about a cat, I'm probably being anxious because the cat is probably not a real threat. But people who have uh, anxieties have a lot to overcome, and it's with self-discipline that you propel yourself through these two external barriers. The third dimension is difference because it has to do with controlling ourselves or basically managing ourselves relative to our egos and relative to our temptation. So in this particular case, what you need to do is you need to hold yourself back. And sometimes we fail in terms of doing that. And in the service, if I bring that full circle to your uh, question, you basically face these three dimensions. You're facing physical uh, pain and fatigue. In fact, they make a point of seeing where you break. And if you don't faint, that means that you didn't really take it to the maximum. But if it was that painful or uh, so fatiguing that you eventually dropped, that means that you can bring it to the uh, max. In terms of dealing with fears uh, and anxiety, of course, you uh, get your share of that if you serve in the relevant uh, units and if you're fortunate to see action. And the last uh, part that we all, I assume, face on a daily basis has to do with managing ourselves. We all have uh, egos. And we need to tone the egos uh, down. The better we do managing our egos, the better we are being empathetic, interacting with other people, being leaders, being brothers, sisters, sons, uh, parents, etc. And then there are temptations. And uh, managing the temptations is probably related to the ego in some way, but uh, that can be very difficult. And what I've found is that some people are fortunate to handle one of those well. Some can handle two or all uh, three. But uh, an interesting uh, insight, uh, Dustin, is that, for example, if you think about uh, the notion of handling fear or being courageous, because there, there's no courage without fear, right? Courage is overcoming fear. If the building is burning and I don't know about it, I'm not being courageous. I'm just uh, not informed. But if I'm aware of the fact that the building is on fire, and then not me, a firefighter helps somebody out of the building, she or he is being courageous. So again, it's overcoming. That is what courage is about. Being patient is not being sleepy and not caring. It's being very driven. It's wanting everything to occur yesterday, but slowing yourself down on the understanding that that's the right uh, strategy. And the interesting point that I wanted to uh, make is that the fact that uh, you've been able to handle, for example, uh, adversity such as fear, the fact that you were able to handle it 10 times. So 10 times you rose to the occasion and you did the right thing despite the fact that you were in risk doesn't mean you're going to do it on the 11th time. And if you're in the right system, you fear that. 
even more than you fear what it is that you're going to confront. That's great insight. You fear the fact that on the 11th time, you're not going to find it within you. Because after all is said and done, and you sit at home and you have a cup of lemonade, and you play back everything that went through, it isn't that you say to yourself, oh, of course I handled that situation the way that I did. No, you say, how lucky am I to have handled that situation the way that I have? Because you don't know what's going to happen. So all of that just means that we need to be very modest. We just don't know what's behind the next hill. That's a great, great perspective. Very, very focused. Well, that's, you know, it's in, Interesting that you say that because Newton said that if I have seen further, it is because of, I stood on the shoulders of giants. And when we look at the Old Testament, the the battle he had David versus Goliath, and that of course you know this, this young man stands in front of this giant, scary, intimidated, fearful, and said, "Ah, I'm looking over him," and that you faced your fear, you didn't allow it to take you down. So now, instead of three years in the military, you served how many? About 12 years. You didn't quit. You said, I got more in me. And so take us post-military. What would you, ne- you do next? So I, um, during my uh, time in the military, I also studied, which is a wonderful program that was offered. Uh, you had to get admitted based on your own merit. Um, and I studied in the university. So I took two years off. I studied, and then I was able to complete my uh, studies. I studied philosophy and law, and then when I uh, ended my uh, service, I flew to the United States and I studied uh, business uh, because, uh, again, I wasn't too passionate about it, but it seemed like a rational thing to do next uh, in terms of determining what's the right next horizon for me. So I arrived in uh, Boston. Uh, again, I was very fortunate. I uh, studied for two years, which was a tremendous time to reflect because if you think about it, we end up spending our life or much of our life shifting from one mission to another. At least maybe the word uh, mission is a little uh, too big, but that's the way that I think about my life, I set missions for myself. And at the end of the day, I arrive in the United States, I'm 30 years uh, 30 years old, and I decided I'm going to study a business. And that's the first time after who knows uh, when, where I get to just sit down and reflect on what's going on and what I want to do next. Because to me, I wasn't studying business because it was clear to me that I want to be a business person. In fact, I never wanted to be a business person. It wasn't my dream. My heroes were not business people. So at the age of 30, I asked myself, what do you want to do? Do you want to go into politics? Do you want to be a lawyer? Do you want to be in the business world, etc.? And as I study business, it's not at all clear to me. I sit in courses about marketing. They're quite boring, actually. And on the other side of the river, uh, some of the best philosophers, psychologists, scientists, uh, legal uh, professors are giving lectures that are much more interesting. So uh, that was a very interesting time, a time of uh, reflection. And I spent a summer in San Francisco with a gentleman who became my uh, mentor. And it was during those two months I worked with summer job. I worked in uh, San Francisco. And he's a very unique uh, gentleman. He's an entrepreneur. 
most of his business life is spent in putting together very large shopping malls and very large real estate uh, deals. And just being next to him and seeing how he acts made it very clear to me that what I want to do is actually be in business, but not be an employee or an executive in some very large uh, company, but rather that the right balance for me between action or power, but at the same time also being free is actually to try and build organizations myself and to go through that process of initiation, design, build, run. And from that point, it was clear to me that that is what I was going to do. I just had to be patient at a nasty word again. Wait a second. So you're telling me that it doesn't happen overnight, that success just doesn't hit you when you blink, that this actually takes time and it takes patience. And patience is the thing that, for me, it's the hardest. And so talk yeah, about that. So, so, so first of all, uh, success never happened to me in a blink. So I'm, I'm not speaking for other uh, people and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm successful, but I've had certain goals and I was able to accomplish them, which is the definition of achieving success. Success in terms of attaining goals that you've established or that somebody established uh, for you. But yeah, I think that patience is very important uh, and it's very difficult for people who are motivated or driven or very high uh, levels of uh, energy, like the two people on this call. And I think that it's a, a skill or a discipline that for, for me had to develop over time. So I've become more patient over time. It doesn't mean that I don't want certain things to occur within two seconds or two uh, minutes, but I understand that they want, and it requires sometimes a long plan. And sometimes in order to get to where you want from a business perspective, I had to go and be an executive in a very large company and spend some time and learn in order to feel sufficiently confident and say, okay, now I think that it's responsible for me to go and ask other people to put their money in an idea that I have or a team has and invite people to drop their jobs and come join that particular company. All of those are steps of responsibility towards other people. And you better be at a reasonable level of confidence that you can take care of that particular situation before you do it. And so how did you set your goals? I mean, you had gone from military now to university, now to working at a company, and then the entrepreneurial side of you came out that said, I got this idea. And so how did you get it? Out of, how did you get it out of your head? And then how did you set your goals? Well, I, I think that, um, I always had clarity at the abstract level of what state I want to reach. And when I say abstract, for example, if we take uh, five minutes back, in abstract, I always wanted to deal with a certain level of a challenging uh, environment that requires me to be very focused and uh, challenged along certain uh, dimensions. But I wanted to do that while maintaining a degree of, I'm going to call it, uh, freedom and latitude. So I preferred not to do that within a large company within which I am an element. I wanted to lead the uh, platform. 
and I didn't feel that it's it's impossible for me to operate within a large organization because I operated within a large organization for about 12 years. The military is a very large organization that serves an even larger organization, which is the government or the country, uh, etc. But the, the point of uh, being an entrepreneur is actually something that was part of me growing up. My father is an entrepreneur. My grandfather is an entrepreneur. They were both uh, very important figures uh, and leaders that I had growing up, which is a great benefit. Having your leaders be with you around the dining table as opposed to being some fictitious characters on television, because what we see on television is oftentimes not the real thing. These are not real people. So uh, I always wanted to do something that requires initiative and design and planning and then building and dealing with the elements. So that was very clear to me, back to your question. And it was just a tactical question of what would be the next thing that I would uh, do? What would be that company that I would start uh, first? And an idea came up. It was while I was an executive or leaving uh, a position in a very large uh, company, and there was an opportunity, and we pursued it, and we figured out what that company will do. And it was in the field, don't fall asleep, Dustin, of information technology infrastructure, which could be extremely interesting for uh, engineers, software engineers, electric engineers, etc. but I'm not an engineer. But what was interesting for me was the overall mission that's associated with it. Let's uh, develop a solution to a significant uh, problem and generate or create uh, value. And it just happened to be that that company developed software. And once that company got acquired, uh, it took me this time about 18 months to think about the next company. And then it was clear in my mind uh, that I'm pursuing something that is worthy and feasible, which are the two super categories. I pursued that, and that was a lot of uh, fun and a very rewarding uh, experience. And that was acquired by uh, Hewlett Packard in 2017. And this time it took me just three weeks to figure out what's next, which is what I really wanted to talk to you about, and that's Bond, because Bond can make life less difficult. Absolutely. I'm joking, but I'm also serious. And in the context of uh, Bond, the way I went about it, because you asked me, how did you know what you were going to do? So um, I took an Excel spreadsheet, and on the first row, I entered all the criteria that the new idea would need to meet. And on the column relative to that, I emptied, or into that column, I emptied a folder that was on my phone called Next, which included all the ideas that came up in the last seven or eight years. And then I evaluated all those ideas against the criteria, and there were about 25 criteria, knowing that none of the ideas will survive the criteria. But the dialectic tension between the ideas and the criteria is gonna give rise to new ideas that I wasn't able to think of uh, top down. And indeed, one of the ideas that was failing across some of the criteria, once it was measured against one of the criteria, gave rise to the idea of bond. And the way that happened is that I was evaluating an idea of security for corporations, because most of my business career was associated um, with creating problems that large corporations or institutions have. I was not uh, selling to consumers. I was selling to corporations. 
And I was thinking about problems that corporations have with data security, with employee security, et cetera. And as I was evaluating that idea relative to the market of corporations, I later just, uh, to be complete in my thinking, evaluated whether that particular idea serves the government and later if it serves the consumers. And then when I got to evaluating the consumer market, and this is very interesting, I was shocked. And you might say, what shocked you? I said, what shocked me is the fact that if you and I now look outside the window, even in non-COVID environment, everything is so peaceful out there. But the point is it only appears peaceful out there. Now, just to be clear, I am thankful uh, for being a U.S. citizen and for living in arguably the safest uh, country and era ever. So let's put that in place and let's be as I am very thankful for everybody who's sacrificing to make that so, starting with our uh, sisters and brothers in the armed uh, forces, in the intel agencies, on to all the layers of protection that we have within the country, including the first responders. So being very thankful uh, to them. But at the end of the day, the closest uh, layer of security that we have as citizens is the 911 sphere. So if we're in emergency, only if we're in emergency, we reach out to 911, which is a beautiful system, by the way. It has over 6,000 centers around the United States. And each one of those 911 centers, they're called PSAPs, knows what zone they're responsible for. So if you pick up the phone right now and you dial 911, you're going to get your PSAP. If I call, I get my PSAP. So it's a wonderful system. But notice that the ceiling or the floor of 911 is quite high. It needs to be a 911 emergency. Well, the point is that we and people whom we love routinely find ourselves in situations that are uncomfortable, even scary, and even risky, but are not yet 911. So in all those situations, what do we do? And the point is, and again, this is not a complaint because we live in a wonderful country. But at that point in time, we start to hack around because there's no solution. So if I walk to my car in a parking garage, me or somebody whom I love, and it's a little dark, I feel uncomfortable. Absolutely. But that's not an emergency. If I walk alone at night and somebody's walking behind me, I'm very uncomfortable. That's not an emergency. 9% of the members of Bond, our Bond, that's the company that I'm with right now, 9% of our members reach out to us when they're in a ride-sharing vehicle. Now, when they reach out to us, uh, Dustin, they're not being attacked. They're just uncomfortable. Now, a lot of people talk these days about mindfulness, right? Mindfulness is such an important uh, mindset in order to be effective, in order to become, in order to experience the world uh, fully. And I'm not the expert on meditation and mindfulness, but I'm just saying, can you be mindful if you're not at peace of mind? If you're concerned about your personal safety, if you're concerned about the safety of your loved ones and you have a nine-year-old, you cannot be mindful if you're not at peace of mind. And there are millions of people around us who spend their days facing certain points where they're a little fearful and they don't have a solution for those particular uh, situations. And we call that, and we call it very modestly, the personal security gap. It's everything that occurs below the 911 line for which there is no common platform or service. 
And what we've done with Vaughn is we've built a platform that addresses those situations. And you might expect that platform to be another technology because everything today is solved with technology. And indeed, technology has done marvelous things in the last 20 years, enhancing our convenience and entertainment and health. But it hasn't done much in order to make us feel more secure. So what we've built is a platform that actually anchors on humans, on 24-7 personal security agents whom we recruit, background check, and train. They're situated in our command centers, and they're available within seconds via an app that we also develop. Now, these security agents sit uh, and help our members at their fingertips. A lot of technologies that we've developed, we've started the company in May 2017. We're now more than uh, three years into it. So there are a lot of technologies. And with those technologies, we can allow people to feel more at peace. For example, I'll give you examples of some services. A service that is used quite a lot is called video monitoring. I'll show you that uh, quickly. So basically, uh, a member taps the uh, app on that particular uh, button. And within seconds, one of our security agents appears on the screen and available to that uh, individual. Uh, you can probably see some of the app. There's a little bit of uh, yeah, glare. Yeah, great solution. Basically, the security agent will present uh, himself and will be available to guide the individual, be by their side, and importantly... Hi, Jaron. This is Steve with Bond. I'm live AMI here. What's the situation? Hey, Steve, thank you for reaching out so quickly. I'm going to call here with Dustin. I felt a little uncomfortable. I wanted you by my side. I okay. feel better now. I'm going to introduce you to Dustin. You do not need to deter him, okay? Okay, excellent. There you go. Dustin, please meet Steve. Hey, Steve. How are you? Hi, good. Thanks for hanging out with us. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I tr truly, there is no harm that's going to come his way. Okay, great. Steve, thank you for reaching out. I feel better now. Can I disconnect? And you can also, what I think is amazing is in that is that I can actually see them. I can look at the person I'm speaking to and they can see me, that they can be there with me. And this is being recorded. That's a great uh, point. And it's hard for people to understand. But we've had situations where our members were in harm's way. Somebody who was, let's think about it as an unwelcome company was approaching them. And they had a security agent on the phone with them on video. And the security agent, you notice they told them, do not deter Steve. Because the protocol is that if somebody approaches me, so let's think about it. If somebody's approaching me, they're probably being opportunistic. It's not that they're looking for me. And they're making two implicit assumptions. Number one, that I'm vulnerable. And the second, that nobody's looking which is typically what people who want to do something bad to somebody, somebody they don't know assume. By bringing the security agent into the picture and having the security agent face the person who's approaching us, basically what the security agent would say in that particular situation, let's assume that the approaching stranger is a man. Sorry for being gender neutral uh, here. Uh, sadly, risks don't distribute themselves equally across the genders. Understood. But I'll, I'll, I'll yep. remain uh, gender neutral. Assuming that the person who approaches me is a man, what the security agent will say is, uh, sir, this is a live video recorded session. We immediately take away the notion that the member is by himself or herself. I'm a security agent of the firm bond. Please do not approach the lady or the general. That's They're brilliant. going to be extremely polite, 
but they're going to be very clear. As you saw, Steve is wearing a blue jacket and a light blue uh, shirt. So it's clear that he's a formal, though empathetic uh, individual. And we had situations where we, and we call it discouraged. We discouraged uh, unwa- unwanted or unwelcome company away from our members, outdoors and indoors. Now, somebody's going to ask me, well, Duran, if somebody's attacking you with a machete or with a gun, are you going to use video monitoring? I'll say, probably not. But in most situations, that's not the uh, scenario. When we walk to our car in a dark parking garage or parking lot, the assumption is not that somebody's going to attack us with, with a gun, though that, of course, could happen. So video monitoring is a very powerful uh, service and you would assume that people use it only in situations when something bad happens. And I would say people use it when they're uncomfortable. And I think if you just read the reviews, and I've interviewed a lot of our members, it just offers peace of mind, uh, which I think is very uh, important and valuable. Other services, without going uh, too deeply, include track me on the go. So if I leave the office every day at 7 p.m., I push that button. The system allows me to determine what's my mode of transportation. Am I going to walk? Am I going to bike? Am I going to drive? Am I going to be on a ride-sharing vehicle, train, et cetera? And then what the system does is it monitors me. Now, you might say, Daron, why does the system care if you're driving or you're in a ride-sharing vehicle? Well, your security profile is different if you're in a ride-sharing vehicle, if you're driving, because if you're driving, you're probably now going to get your car in a parking lot or parking garage, which would be the riskiest part of your journey. People also use services like security check. You can set a security check on yourself or on loved ones, and we're gonna reach out in the mode of communication that you've chosen, check if people are okay. Anyhow, it's very rewarding because uh, we're helping a lot of people. The platform and the company is growing very fast. It's available to consumers. It's available to institutions. Uh, We had to pause a little bit during the first months of uh, COVID because clearly if everybody is hunkered down at home and they're not going out, they don't need some of our services. Sadly, however, Dustin, the number of calls that are associated with emotional despair, people just not feeling good, or uh, also domestic violence, actually those roles during the months of uh, COVID. So we try to do our uh, best and it's an interesting uh, mission that we have here. I, I think it's fascinating. You know, what you've ultimately done is you've given people a unit. I mean, that same piece of mind that you had in your unit, we've had uh, Colonel Ferrando on the show, uh, we've had uh, Marine Recon, we've had Navy SEAL, a Navy SEAL, and they've all said that when they were with their unit, they felt safe, that no matter where they were, it was my brothers in arms and my sisters in arms were around me. And then now that is what you're giving people like me around the world or people here in my country. You're giving us our peace back and letting us know that we are not alone and that yes, there are nefarious people out there and bad people, but you have a unit now that has your back, a unit that will not, uh, not answer. They will be there when you need them the most. And I think it's quite amazing, your story, Doran, that you had an amazing military career. You sold a company. You could have retired. You started another one. You could have retired. But that wasn't the end. You wanted people around the world to ultimately get to the same place that you are, where you have your peace. And in the United States right now, you turn on the news, and they're showing you things that are happening every single day. And every single day, people like me and my family and other families around me 
Now they're worried. Should I go to a major city? Should, should, I, should I travel? And you're giving people that ability to go out again. So tell us, where do you go next? What is your next goal? Well, I, I think that the uh, Bond mission uh, is a very significant mission. I think that there's uh, an opportunity and in a way a, a duty, but um, uh, let's keep it a, a, at an opportunity uh, level so I don't sound too self-righteous. But I think that there's an opportunity to touch a lot of people with this platform globally and basically populate this gap between our uh, wonderful first responders and the 911 service that we, we just cannot pay enough taxes in order to bring that to the level that each individual is going to have a first responder by his side or by her side while maintaining privacy, which is very important, right? One of the benefits of, of Bond, and I'll get to your question in a minute because where I go next is where I am. We, we just need to complete this mission uh, first, uh, Dustin. But basically giving people this peace of uh, mind while maintaining their privacy, I think is a role of a private sector company. For a variety of reasons, we don't need to get into the philosophy of that. And I think that there's a lot uh, to do. So there are, if you just go over the statistics, there are so many things that threaten us and that hurt to us, uh, uh, happen to us uh, as a society and as individuals. So. There's much more to build. We have uh, ideas and technologies that are still under development. Um, this is probably going to take uh, a long time. But I say a long time, not in a discouraging uh, way. I'm looking forward to it. It's very challenging. It's very rewarding. And we're not taking it for granted. And I take them one at a time, Dustin. So I never think about the next mission. There is no other mission. This is the mission. So there's a lot uh, to do for Bond and for me in the context of Bond. And how do we learn more about you? Great. So uh, very important uh, for us as parents, by the way, to evaluate how this uh, solution fits into the people whom we love uh, around us. And there are two ways to find us. First of all, you go to the App Store, either the Apple or the Google App Store, and you look for our bond, as in our bond uh, with you, or bond personal security. You download the app, and it makes sense for those of us who are parents or those of us who are responsible for other people just pay some attention and read or listen to some of the videos we put together and figure which of the services fit best into the life circumstances of people around us. That's one way of going about it. Another way of going about it is to go to our website, www.ourbond.com, and learn more about it. By the way, the service that we recently launched allows people to get security, personal bodyguards. Because if you think about it, bodyguards, at the end of the day, it's something that is out of reach. How out of reach? As out of reach as black car limousines used to be before Uber. So I remember flying to Austin, Texas. I had a meeting, I remember, with Michael Dell. I had a, I think it's called Boston or Cambridge uh, limousine. A black car uh, picked me up at the airport, took me to the meeting, waited for me, took me back to the airport. You had to organize it a day in advance, you need to commit to four hours, and you paid a lot. Now, Uber made all of that very fungible. We probably use these cars when are available just to make it from east side to west side of New York. We're doing the same thing to the notion of bodyguards, such that bodyguard is as easy to order as it is easy to order dinner online. You tip, You tap the app, you ask for a bodyguard, 
the cost is $30 for the first 30 minutes and $50 per hour. That's it. So almost, that, that's almost that's remarkable. We get the bodyguard uh, to you. And now just think about the use cases that opens. Get the bodyguard to take your kids to Aunt Samantha. Have the bodyguard with you when a couple of uh, friends are going out for uh, drinks, maybe not during the COVID time, etc. Or you're going to an important meeting. So what we want is we want personal security to more, be more available to individuals. A lot of services available. Each individual should find out which of the services is relevant for his and her loved ones. What an, Dustin, an incredible your service. Time. Nah, that's incredible service. And I got to ask you one more question. And this is for all the entrepreneurs out there. Someone sitting with an idea in their head. They're trying to find a way to get it out. How do you get the idea out? How to find an idea or how to realize the idea? How to realize the idea. How to, how to get it done, basically. Well, I think that the first part is determining if you've got the right idea. Because at the end of the day, if you're the type to, that sticks to what uh, she or he starts, you're going to spend seven years trying to develop an idea. It better be the right idea for you. So ask yourself if it's the right idea. And it typically falls into two sets of criteria. Number one has to do with worthiness. Whatever you think is worthy. It could be morally worthy or worthy on other bases. And secondly, it needs to be feasible. And when you think about the feasibility, think about the capital it would require. How do you get it in the hands of uh, customers if you need channels of distribution, et cetera? And speak with people who understand the domain. Learn from other people. As I say to our team members in the company all the time, we need to execute very well and we need to innovate very well. It's very hard to balance those uh, two. But as it pertains to innovation, innovate when there isn't something that you can just benchmark. If somebody's already invented something good enough, just copy it. Copy it legally, of course, but figure out where you need to innovate and where not. So if you have a good idea, speak with people who've done something similar and get their perspective, but then follow your gut. Because I will tell you that none of the companies that I've started were ones where everybody told me, yes, this is going to work. So on the prior company, I probably spoke with all the IT professionals <laughs> And they told me it's not going to work. So at the end of the day, you've got to follow your gut. Life's tough. Doran Keppel is tougher. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Dustin. Be well. Take care. Thank you again, Doran, for sharing your story. My takeaway was this, that if I can't accomplish and finish the small things, that I won't be able to finish my remaining goals, some that appear to be giants when looking at it straight on. Newton said it best, if I have seen further, it is from standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, isn't that our mission? Preparing ourselves and the people in our circle for their journey to face and climb over the giant, to face the fear, anxiety, trauma, and the cares like it was necessary to prepare you for your purpose. Because when you stand on the giant and you look around you, you're in awe. And that was what Newton saw when he looked at the stars. He woke up and started living. Life's tough. You can be tougher.